You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 5th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster. On today's show, France is the most heavily taxed nation on earth. That's according to the OECD. In the wake of violent street protests, what can President Emmanuel Macron do to ease the financial pain? My guests, Jonathan Fenby and Terry Stiatsny, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including US President Donald Trump spooks the financial markets, again with a tweet about trade tariffs and China. Plus, we will not revoke Article 50. The British people voted to leave the European Union and we will be leaving. Another day, another slice of Brexit. Theresa May defends herself against claims she misled Parliament. We'll be discussing these and the story of the nine-year-old boy who successfully overturned a ban on throwing snowballs. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Jonathan Fenby, the former editor of the South China Morning Post and now chairman of China Research and director of European Political Research at TS Lombard and also the journalist and author Terry Stiatsny. Welcome both of you to the programme. Let's start with France because it has topped the poll as the most heavily taxed nation in a survey of 34 developed countries. Findings by the economic think tank, the OECD, revealed that in 2017, tax revenues rose to 46. 2% of GDP, putting France ahead of Denmark with the ratio slipped to 46%. For the French President Emmanuel Macron, the results couldn't have come at a worse time as he grapples with public resentment at higher living costs and a budget whose biggest beneficiaries are some of the country's wealthiest people. In recent days, that anger has spilt over into a series of violent street protests, forcing the President into postponing by six months a planned rise in fuel taxes. Well, before we take a look at France, itself. Let's talk about that OECD data because I think it's fair to say it provides a pretty fascinating glimpse into the efficiency or otherwise of the tax collecting apparatus of 34 developed countries, Jonathan. Yes, well, I think Mexico is at the bottom of the list, and I don't know anything about the Mexican tax collectors, but maybe they're a little less uh, assiduous than the French or uh, the Danish or elsewhere. Of course, this uh, the important thing is this, this includes all tax. So it's VAT and other taxes, uh, taxes on employers, taxes on employment, and so on and so on, as well as income tax. And, of course, what's happened in France is that Macron has cut some tax, but the beneficiaries of that have been the rich and and this has led to him being branded as a president for the rich. And that helps to fuel the current uh, protests that we've been mm. seeing. And, and Terry, just, just picking up on that point that Jonathan made about the sort of taxes that were collected, the ones that we know about, of course, there's the income that we don't know about that might find its way to Panama, although that's not quite such a good, such a good place to go since the Guardian expose of this hidden wealth. Well, yes, I think it's, you know, it also suggests that perhaps if you look at Denmark, then people are more prepared and, you know, committed to paying their taxes. And as we'll no doubt come on to discuss, people in Denmark aren't often taking to the streets in the same way as they are at the moment in France and trying to protest. And to contrast with, say, Mexico, you know, that's probably more a sign that 
the government's uh, control of, of civil society isn't what it might be. And so people, you know, not the tax burden may not be that it's sort of a great free enterprise economy. It might just mean that the, the state apparatus is not working particularly well. Mm. But certainly it's staying with the idea of, of Scandinavia, Jonathan, because uh, whenever we look at welfare reform, for example, in this country, the United Kingdom, and how it's supposed to be financed, there is the argument, well, look, let's look to the Scandinavian model yeah, because yeah. people are taxed highly and it goes into welfare programmes. In other words, there's something tangible at the end of it. It's how you sell a tax increase. It is indeed. And actually, interestingly, Emmanuel Macron uh, has always said that he wants to introduce a Scandinavian-style model into France uh, in, in face of the, the, the present one. Uh, and what the, the Scandinavians have done very largely is a kind of entente um, originally between the unions uh, and the employers uh, with the government, of course, uh, involved particularly the Social Democrat governments in Sweden and other countries, which was for high taxation, high welfare spending, but at the same time encouraging competitive capitalism, if you like, within that. Whereas a lot of countries tend to see those two, uh, welfare and taxes and competitive capitalism, as being opposed uh, to one another. Mm. And again, let's, let's put the focus now on, on Emmanuel Macron, a very sort of nice segue into him, I suppose. Yeah, well. <laughs> but Terry, Terry, I mean, obviously, Jonathan, you're the expert on this, but Terry, let's, let's get, get your take on this, because look, he has agreed to a temporary postponement of that fuel tax increase. But do you think that he may be forced to make further concessions because there's no doubt about it that the violence we saw last weekend in Paris and indeed the weekend before, it shocked the political establishment to the core. It was totally unexpected. Uh, yes, and there is the threat now, um, rather than these concessions, uh, you know, calming things down, there is a danger that more people are going to get involved. I think one of the interesting things about these protests is that we, we've often seen, you know, many autumns in France, you get sort of a hot, hot autumn, as they say, where there are regularly protests against the government. But in the past, mostly they have been uh, led by trades unions. And this is a very different situation because it is completely, as far as I know, a grassroots movement. You know, it's the yellow high vis vests that everybody has in France has to carry in their car, and that's become a symbol. And it's quite an interesting concession that the Prime Minister had to make today, which was not only suspending fuel tax rises, but also halting uh, rises of gas and electricity prices and promising not yet to toughen up um, things like vehicle emissions standards. So it's very much, it's kind of the white van men and women of France, if you like, who are saying, look, these things are hitting my business. They are you know, hitting my cost of living, uh, and and we don't like it. I mean, they don't feel represented really by either by Macron's government or by the other institutions as well. So it's kind of come up from the grassroots, mm. and it is difficult to see. You know, if you haven't got a very organised protest with leaders and people to discuss with, it's quite difficult to know exactly what it is uh, that people want and what will satisfy them. And you've written extensively about this, Jonathan, because you, you've, re- you've recently written a big book about France, the history, history of France. Of France. Yes, yes, <laughs> so yes. You, may, you may have missed a little bit of what's been happening <laughs> now, but, but, but the thing which, which comes out about this is that, yes, it is economic resentment which taps into something much bigger as well, this division between the town and the country, yep. this, this lack of understanding 
from this pre- this this president. He doesn't understand why uh, the, these these fuel hikes can hit people living in rural communities perhaps more than others. Yes, and you you've had in France a lot of people moving out of particularly the centre uh, of big cities because they can't afford to live there, going to live in smaller towns or in the countryside where they are dependent on their motor car to get them around uh, and so on. Uh, and that has been uh, definitely a one uh, factor in this. But I think there's a much, there's a broader feeling, and this is where Macron faces the biggest danger, that he's out of touch, that his what he called Jupiterian uh, approach to the presidency, being aloof and above like de Gaulle, uh, and occasionally coming down with the tablets of wisdom to deliver to the people, uh, just doesn't work. Uh, once you get this kind of movement starting, and it's spread to uh, farmers, it's spreading to truckers, it's spreading to students too. So you're getting a lot of ralbol, let's say, I've had enough, people who are just fed up and so on. And of course, the violence, the question with the violence, which is only of a tiny number of the, not even the protesters, they're more kind of professional violent uh, people who latch on uh, to the the protests, um, whether that will dissipate the quite high levels of support for the movement, you know, 60 to 70 percent, uh, whether you'll get, as in 68, the, 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 the uh, movement there, which ended with actually the biggest conservative majority in parliament in elections and a kind of return of the silent majority, whether that's going to happen uh, or whether this actually is a much more broadly based uh, movement of people who are feel left behind and fed up. Mm. And that's the interesting point, isn't it, Terry? It, it's where this can go because, yes, the government is on the back foot at the moment, but you could argue that its position is strengthened by the fact that there are no discernible leaders. And even those individuals who have come forward to talk to the government have been pushed back. And uh, indeed, some of them have said they've been physically threatened because they try to negotiate. Yes, it's difficult. We saw, you know, people not want to go and actually have these meetings with the government because they said, well, we want to be able to film them to show that we said, you know, what we were going to and be able to put that in the public domain. I mean, it's quite interesting compared with some of the, you know, the situation in the past where we had these kind of union-led protests. In the past, people who were in French trade unions have been very well protected. If you worked on the railways, for instance, you know, you had very good uh, terms and conditions of service and things like retirement ages and stuff were very low. Mm. That's one of the kinds of things that Macron has been trying to change and trying to encourage, you know, enterprise and and small business. But if you're not in one of those traditional jobs, then you don't necessarily have those protections. And so you're not one of the people that, you know, were benefited from that system in the past. And so now you're feeling that you're they're getting clobbered sort of always round and that's one of the things I think that is kind of fueling this anger but I mean obviously uh, Jonathan is more familiar with the history than me but you know you have had uprisings like this in the past I mean Pujadists in the past they were you know representatives of the small businesses the people Mm. that felt hard done by and and I don't know whether you think there's any similarity Uh, with that you you have these regular risings in France if you like from the street Uh, and usually what's been interesting um, since 68 the government has given way uh, to these. Very few presidents have actually, it's as if you're afraid of uh, 1789 happening again, a revolution, mm. and you'll be executed. Minus the guillotine. Uh, well, you might have the guillotine <laughs> set up in the, the courtyard of the Elysee Palace. Uh, you never quite know. Um, but it's this fear because in France, the this tradition of 
if you like, the street of the, 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 the people making their decisions known through violent action outside Parliament and so on, has this tradition going back uh, to the revolution. It's got a kind of almost sacred uh, element to it, which people mm. draw upon. Uh, and also, Macron's problem uh, coming back to bite him is that he's actually gone round a lot of the regular political and social institutions in France, the trade unions, who he's marginalized to some extent with his reforms so far, particularly to the Labour Code, the, the opposition parties, which are very weak in France indeed. So there is he with his new parliamentary majority uh, and himself, but with the reality that an awful lot of French people voted for extremes and left, of left and right mm. in the first round of the presidential election. Because this was a point as well, wasn't it, Terry, about um, his, his his party, that it was it was meant to be this this big open door that it, you didn't you didn't necessarily have to be experienced as long as you had very good ideas. So in that sense, I guess you could say that he was taking something out of Trumpism that you don't need experience to run a country. But of course, when you when you're confronted with a hard nosed reality, maybe that experienced hand uh, could be very ha- useful. And also, you know, the network of a political party and political mm. organisation. He has an organisation, but it's not an established one. I mean, sure. it's quite interesting how Macron's been handling this. He's been criticised for not going out and meeting people. You know, he sort of was showed the, saw the damage, went and met the fire brigades and so forth, people mm. that had dealt with it. Um, but I remember during the election campaign, he was actually surprisingly good at talking to people on the ground. There was one time when he went to um, a strike, the Whirlpool strike, yeah. and he went and actually listened to people and to what their concerns were and he actually won quite a few of them over and this is not a tactic that he seems to be able to try at the moment so by remaining aloof and not talking to people it just sort of fuels that idea that he is mm. like the sun king and he he's on high and he doesn't engage with people on the yes. ground well, when a demonstrator a couple of months ago treated him familiarly and so on he said you know mm. i am president of the republic mm. you must treat me and he has that feeling of respect yeah. and also he you know he's lost the interior minister who was a very experienced provincial politician from lyon and ran that child colomb he's lost the environment minister who was a very popular green and so on and he's actually the, the government is pretty thin in, mm. in in terms of you know those old-fashioned links with the roots of different parts sure, of French society. Roots as well, yes, yeah. Yes. Okay, let's move on now to the United States where Donald Trump has spooked the global financial markets with a tweet in which he described himself, and I quote, as a tariff man. Not stable genius, but a tariff man. Whilst warning that more trade levies could be imposed on China. Now, the extraordinary outburst comes just days after Mr Trump returned from a G20 meeting in Argentina, where over dinner with his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping, the two men agreed to a 90-day ceasefire in their ongoing trade war. Now, though China says it will work to implement specific issues that have already been agreed, the latest Trump tweet has confused the markets and soured whatever optimism there may have been from the G20. Jonathan, you've also written a big book about China as well. You're working your way around the globe. But I mean, you have to ask yourself on this. I mean, did Donald Trump simply allow his ego to get the better of him, hence putting his foot in it? Or is there some sort of strategy to what appears to be surface madness? I don't think there's much strategy here. <laughs> I think Trump tends to remember and repeat on his tweets what he wants to have heard from a meeting. And he wanted to have heard that he, 
the enormous genius or whatever stable uh, genius, stable <laughs> genius um, had got these great concessions out of China. Uh, so, uh, in return for his threat, you know, his, his withholding of the tariffs due to come in at the beginning of January, but his threat to reassert them after three months if China didn't do what he wanted, which is is a, a strange way of exerting your power. It might be said, you know, you threaten something, then you withdraw it, and then you say, "Hey, uh, they're scared of me." Um, he talked about auto tariffs uh, being uh, reduced in China. Well, that has been around since the beginning of last year. He talked about uh, China being ready to lift its veto on a takeover of a Dutch uh, high-tech firm by an American high-tech firm, which the American high-tech firm no longer wants to do. He talked about uh, opioids, various uh, substances and mm. so on, which are already on the banned list in China. It was all pretty, pretty wild and pretty uncertain as to where he was going. So and, a smoke and mirrors game, basically. Yeah, and initially markets, and he's very aware of the stock market, shot up 600 points and so on. Uh, China and America are going to get on. There's going to be some kind of trade agreement. And then people actually thought, what does this really consist of? And particularly given the silence from China mm. uh, and the feeling that the Chinese are just waiting uh, on this, uh, you had the slump in the markets uh, uh, yesterday. And that's, and that's the thing, isn't it, Terry? I mean, I always find it fascinating looking at Xi Jinping because there is that that smile on the face that gives away absolutely nothing. And when you see him with Donald Trump, it's Donald Trump who's doing all the gesticulating, Xi Jinping wearing that Mona Lisa smile expression and slightly nodding the head. And you do wonder, what is going on? What are you planning? You don't so much have a plan B. You've also got a C, D and E, we suspect. Mm. Well, I think it's just, you know, it shouldn't need saying, but unfortunately in the, the current state of affairs, it does, is that you can't conduct very, very detailed, complex trade negotiations in 200 180 characters or less. It just can't Or over be... a quick meal. Or over a quick... <laughs> well, well, you can make all of the right, you know, diplomatic noises over a meal at a big G20 summit. And again, you will come out with nice platitudes that we would all like to trade and we would all like, you know, everything to happen and, and this will all be fine. But when it comes down to it, you know, there must be teams of negotiators who must just sort of switch on their phone in the morning, see these things and they go, oh, that's another really, really, really difficult day at the office because they have to go through, as, you know, as Jonathan's saying the very precise agreements on agricultural products, on computer chips, on mm. cars, on steel, and you know, and line by line exactly how that's going to be done. And now mm. they've given themselves a very short period of time, this 90 days supposedly, to try and uh, come to some sort of agreement. But, you know, we just see how dangerous it is when, you know, you can make the nice diplomatic platitudes, that's fine, that's all priced in. But when you suddenly say, this is going to happen, and, you know, as with Trump's tweet, and the Dow Jones fell by 3%, the Tokyo market, it's fell mm. by one percent, having you know, having gone up, of course, on the reports of uh, you know what came out of the G20. Um, but this just makes the the negotiations even more mm. precarious because the companies who see their share prices being affected are going to start sort of worrying as to what's going to happen once these once these deals mm. are actually. But, negotiated. I, but I guess as well that the the elephant in the room at, at that that dinner was intellectual property theft. I mean, this is yeah. this is Donald Trump's real bugbear, and I guess that what the markets or observers would have been looking for was something perhaps reassuring about that. But it just seems to have been quietly kicked into the rough. Uh, yes, well, that's never really been on the table as far as I'm concerned here. The, the real essence of this fight, and it is a big fight, uh, is technology. And China's uh, ambitions under what is called the Made in China 2025 policy program, which is a pretty catch-all program, but it's artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, everything else and so on. China wants to be 
at least equal with the United States uh, by 2025 in high advanced technologies. It's a long way behind at the moment. And it's classic way of going about that, which is either to buy up technology, mm. copy it or steal it, uh, is, is now at, 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 at the real issue, which is here. But China isn't going to give and Xi Jinping are not going to give way on that. They're not going to say, oh, we're happy to be number two technologically mm. in the world. We will always follow you. We will do as you say, you know, da, da, da. That, that is not going to happen. And what Trump, the Trump's other problem is that his own administration is very divided on this. He's got the Treasury, Steve Mnuchin, mm. who wants to do a deal. And Larry Kudlow, his chief economic advisor. On the other hand, he's got a man called Peter Navarro yes. and uh, Robert Who's Lighthizer. Who's a, a Trump ally on this. Oh, a Trump, who seem to have Trump's ear. And they are, we've got to nail China down here. Mm. This is the real big fight for, if you like, primacy in the world. But then let's turn this around in the time that we have available because Donald Trump has said that he's not afraid to impose more tariffs. But you do have to ask yourself, Terry, whether it's the political and social impact of the trade wars that could ultimately force him into a retreat. Now, I ask you that question with uh, the GM plant closure issue in mind, because GM has said, look, we have to streamline our operations to customer needs, but at the same time, we're responding to the trade wars. Well, exactly. And, you know, Trump's main hope out of all of this is to try and get uh, a deal that is going to appeal to his own base, whether that's in terms of selling US farm products into China, whether that's in terms of uh, the steel industry that he's really hoping to boost the domestic industry. That's a big concern. And one final point is slightly complicated by, I mean, we heard from MI6, the head of MI6 yesterday, Britain saying we should be really wary about Chinese technology companies and whether they are trying to effectively listen in on us. Mm, and very, very briefly, Jonathan. Well, just say, I mean, all this, of course, is now in the um, dimension of the next presidential election and Trump's desire to be re-elected. And clearly his base is not enough, as we saw from the midterms, mm. to get him re-elected. On the other hand, if he puts on tariffs, particularly the new set of tariffs, that is going to send up American prices, consumer prices, inflation and interest rates. And he doesn't want that. OK, then. So watch this space. But you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Terry Stiatsny and Jonathan Fenby. Coming up next. Yes, more Brexit. This time misery for the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, as she is forced to defend herself against allegations she misled Parliament. Russia is a large and unwieldy beast, but in recent decades it's been tamed by President Vladimir Putin, who's deftly tightened his grip on power. To find more about where Russia finds itself today, from its soft power to its economy, watch our animated nation survey, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Still with me are Terry Stiatsny and Jonathan Fenby. Now, it has been a miserable few days for Prime Minister Theresa May, who is battling to persuade MPs to back her deal for Britain's withdrawal from the European Union. Government ministers were found to be in contempt of Parliament for issuing a summary of the legal advice rather than the full document on the withdrawal deal. At the same time, MPs back to call, giving them a direct say in what happens if the deal is rejected in a vote next week. And to make matters worse, the Prime Minister has been accused of misleading Parliament as MPs debate the the contents of the full legal advice which was published earlier today. It's one of those confused you won't be moments really, isn't it, Terry? But I mean, look, it isn't the first time that Prime Minister has been, have been accused of misleading Parliament, but in light of um, the, the, this decision that, that, that basically the government was found in contempt, it carries a bit more of a sting, this allegation, doesn't it? 
Uh, yes, this was something that was said in Parliament by uh, a member of the SNP, their the leader in, in Westminster. And this is about the most serious allegation or accusation that you can get in Parliament. And the Speaker uh, today at Prime Minister's Question sort of came down on it like a ton of bricks. And he said, there can be no imputation of dishonour. And he was you know, asked to... It's very Victorian uh, language, yeah, isn't it? John Berker usually uses <laughs> yeah. very Victorian language. He kind of <laughs> likes that. Um, the bigger question, I mean, Theresa May's response was, uh, it was to to do with Scotland and the role of Scotland and she said you know we are leaving the EU as the whole UK um, it's amazing yet again that she is still standing at the end of a day like yesterday and at the end of today um, one of the most interesting things today was really was the Attorney General's legal advice about the backstop which it's not surprising made uh, many Brexiteers made particularly uh, the Democratic Unionists in Northern Ireland very angry uh, because it was set Setting out the terms in which Northern Ireland under the backstop could remain in the customs union. And one of his main points there was saying Britain is Great Britain, as distinct from Northern Ireland, mm. is treated as a third country by Northern Ireland for goods if that happens. That, uh, the DUP said that legal advice was devastating. Um, but one of the strange things today was Jeremy Corbyn did not decide to push the Prime Minister on this. She and he's the, he's the leader of the opposition, yes, Labour, the leader Party. Of the opposition Labour Party yeah. to his own side. He decided to talk instead at Prime Minister's questions about a subject close to his heart, fair enough, which is was poverty and the United Nations. Many of his own side and others are a little bit annoyed with him, let's say, just for not hitting the government where they're weak and that's, for allowing a subject yeah, that, <laughs> which, which allowed the, the government side to unite for a ch- and after a day when they had been completely completely split mm. and this is this is interesting that, that I'm, I'm glad that Terry threw in Jeremy Corbyn's name because um, in light of, of what happened with um, the, the contempt and the, the MPs basically getting the right to be more involved in the Brexit process of course uh, the question was well could there be a general election and if there is a general election and Labour were to win this general election, would their approach be any different to that of Mrs May's? I mean, speaking for myself, I'm allowed to have an opinion here. My take would be, well, it's the same mess. It's just a different broom to clear it. But maybe that's being a bit unfair. It is, and particularly with Corbyn. I mean, I think there's a slight difference between Corbyn and some of the people around him, particularly Keir Starmer, who's uh, handling, who's officially in charge of, of this Well, he pushed subject. the contempt motion. He's pushed the contempt motion. Corbyn, you feel, just is not doesn't like the EU particularly. <laughs> he probably sees it as a capitalist uh, exploitative uh, organisation and so on and so on and as Terry was saying you know he will veer off on another subject uh, if he possibly can it's um, his comfort zone I guess it's his, yeah, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't like it there but I think the question now is whether I, I speak as a Remainer uh, here the kind of sensible centre of the Tory party and of Labour will make their influence felt finally. Now, that sounds like mm. um, what well, an idea that has been floated but the interesting yeah. thing Terry is that lots of ideas are floated, they seem a bit wacky and way off but they suddenly find themselves coming into the political foreground but the idea that's been talked about recently is a, is a government of coalition in other yeah. words well, you get you get the adults yes. from all sides <laughs> and get them to work together you because have, the children are going nuts you in, have the to- literally in the toy shop. taken the words out of my mouth <laughs> I was just going to say the grown-ups in the room there interestingly yesterday one of the things we saw was what they call this motion on uh, getting into the jargon again a meaningful vote on what happens if there is no deal but the people putting forward that motion forward I would describe on all sides as the grown-ups in the room they were sensible people they were people like Dominic Green 
leave. There were people who have been government ministers, like Joe Johnson, for instance. Mm. There were a lot of resigned from his yeah, post he was resigned his government. from you know the the brother of the more famous Boris, um, and. These were people who could work together with Labour, who could work together with Liberal Democrats, with the SNP, and we are gradually seeing uh, a slight coalition of this on important votes and Parliament actually coming into its own. And these people, better than, you know, I think either the government or the opposition front bench, working on their tactics as to what we actually do. And if, if there's anything encouraging we can take out of it, it's like the, the grown-ups are thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, except they have a terrible name, you know, Government of National Union, GNU. Flanders and Swan. <laughs> Finally, let's move on now. A nine-year-old boy has convinced officials in the small town of Severance, Colorado, to overturn a law banning snowball fights. Dane Best and his friends wrote letters to the town's leaders in protest against the rule, which he said was outdated. The law had been part of a larger ordinance that made it illegal to throw or shoot stones or missiles at people, animals, buildings, trees or any other property. Sounds to me that young Mr Best could actually lead us in the, the scramble to try and get some sort of a sensible Brexit. But, um, <laughs> but when you look at this law, it puts snowballs in the same category as missiles and projectiles and stones. Seems a bit of a no-brainer really, doesn't it, guys? <laughs> <laughs> it does. Apparently in the town also pets are only classified as cats and dogs and this boy also has a guinea pig. So he's now that's Ooh. his next challenge is to include broaden the definition so to he's include got a, guinea He's pigs. actually got a criminal record without <laughs> looking for one. Yeah, well, when you warned us that you were going to raise this subject, we've all been trawling the internet to find ridiculous laws and so on. And uh, shall I lead off on you? Oh, yes. yes. you're, 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 yes, you're the bursting, one that Theresa May might probably like to overturn more than anything. It's think, illegal to die in the Houses of Parliament in London. I don't know quite what they do you said that true. you're they taking the hospital you and you're officially pronounced dead on arrival at st thomas's hospital which is just across the river so yes nobody ever dies in the palace of westminster it is also legal to wear a suit of armor in parliament I was going which to say, theresa may would like possibly to overturn this 14th yes, century law but it's, it's just about dying in the palace of westminster but spencer percival i think he was the only british <laughs> yes, prime minister yes. who was assassinated exactly. in the 19th century the early 19th century but he did he die at home when they managed to get him away or i suppose he died yes. somewhere else right yeah, so he definitely. didn't break the law then on the other hand <laughs> <laughs> in the city of York in northern England, it is legal to murder a Scotsman within oh, the, the ancient ouch. city walls, but only if he's carrying a bow and arrow. So I'm if glad you're a Scotsman, that. be careful not to carry a bow and arrow uh, in the city of York. And okay. the internet also tells me it's illegal to fly a kite in London, so I'm proposing the Mary Poppins well, Act to repeal that because everybody should be allowed to go and fly. And the Mary Poppins tried, movie has been yes, yes, released really yeah, soon, isn't it? I tried many times to fly kites with my children <laughs> on Hampstead Heath. I could never get them to rise but in the air. at least the policeman didn't come <laughs> tell you not to. No, no, exactly not. There, there. The, the only other thing which springs to mind that I can think of is um, the, the tradition with the state opening of Parliament and an MP is taken hostage but that's that's probably not a history or anything but anyway look I mean that, yeah. that's going to lead me on to Brexit and we don't want to go there again but uh, it really brings us now to the end of today's show now that we have these traditions and forms of law breaking but Jonathan Fenby and Terry Stiatsny thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House today's show was produced by Tom Hall researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Nick Moniz now studio manager was Kenya Scarlett <laughs> <laughs>